1: Off, I'm Shona. I'll be checking on you regularly. Twenty? Notes? Was it not? 25. You want to start at disco? so you going to help me or what? What do you think of that, then? Bands would be cool. Such as? Simple Minds.
0: Wait, but how much? What's the legacy? Bring <laughs> like the chain We'd like to book the vapours. <laughs> the skids. Is STC available? Full house, eh? Got to do it <laughs> bigger. We'd like to book Pink Floyd, The Stones and Fleetwood Mac.
1: You're complete and utter fanny. We decided to book one of your more up and coming bands. Iron Mountain. Huh?
0: we after a venue. You want a any decent venue this time, you have to ask Des Fergie.
1: Des Fergie.
0: I know what I'm doing. Show sure, my patience off that too. You've let your ambition blind your ability. You person now you owe me. Three, blah. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Max Movie Reviews podcast. I am your host, Matthew Perkovich, and this is episode number 345. Releasing in Australia May 12th on digital and on demand is schemas. the true story of how rock promoter and manager David McLean first got his start as a young man in Dundee, Scotland during the late 1970s promoting up-and-coming bands that culminated in a hugely ambitious Iron Maiden show that changed David's life forever. An entertaining blend of biography, drama, and cheeky crying caper, Schemers is also written and directed by the very same David McLean, who is the lead character in the film. And I'm happy to say that David joins me now on the Matt's Movie Reviews podcast. David, I thank you very much for joining me today.
1: Uh, Great to be here, Matt. Good, good. Look forward to talking.
0: And so am I. And it's really interesting how when I came across this movie, you know, I love rock, I love hard rock, and I've read a lot of books, and I've seen a lot of documentaries, not you don't really come across that much um, movies, especially biography movies made by the very same person who based on the life it's about. Um, a lot of people do go over the book route, or if they go with film, they do the whole documentary thing. You chose to do a narrative feature film based on your life experiences, and was it always kind of like an ambition of yours to have your story told in this medium of film?
1: No, not not really. I only I only did the movie because I thought a book would be too difficult. I, I went to went to Watterson's bookstore in Bangkok one day, and I thought wow, there's about 2,000 books here. I mean, I'd never got on the shelf, you know? So I thought, making a film will be a lot easier. Well, that's what I thought anyway. So that's how I ended up doing the film because I read that 99% of people who try to make a film, they never get it finished. Mm. And then I thought, if I could get in that last 1%, there can't be that many films, so at least it will have a chance of being seen. But the book, there's thousands and thousands of books. So... It was never a big ambition to make a film. It was just the band I was working with while well, I managed placebo were having some downtime and they, they they'd always said to me, Look, Dave, why don't you write a book or why do not you write a film or something? So so I just did that instead, just, just while they were in the downtime. And then it kinda kinda snowballed a bit for me, really.
0: That snowball, during that journey into making this film, when when did you make the decision that you would be the one to direct it? Have you dabbled in film beforehand? Um, did you have, like, uh, say, people in the music industry who you knew also did film stuff as well, and you could lean on them in regards to experience of how to make this film and make sure you were in that 1% that got your film on screens?
1: Uh, it was a bit weird, really. I mean, we'd done three or four documentaries before. We did one... Um placebo when they played at Angkor Wat in uh, Cambodia, which was which was pretty cool. Then we did a documentary of placebo on the Trans-Siberian Express um, from some oh, someplace away in the east of Russia up to uh, Moscow, about 12, 12 shows. So that that won a few awards. And then we did another one. We, we did one at the Mercy Centre in Bangkok mm. about this guy Father Joe, this priest that's been there 50 years. So that's coming out on that? So that's going to get broadcast in about three or four weeks. So we have okay. done sort of documentaries before. But the, the thing with the film was um, it was in two shoots. We had a director on the first shoot and it didn't work out. So um, we had to can a lot of the stuff. And I thought, well, I might as well direct it myself, the second shoot. So I did that. So I, I took my editor guy to Bangkok. We wrote 15 new scenes, went back to Dundee and um, we shot the second shoot in January when it was like minus 10 mm. and the first shoot first shoot was in May when it was like 80 degrees and hot so it was weird how we managed to make it look like it was at the same time because luckily although it was minus 10 it was like really sunny but see, for example the the scene where the guys are smoking a, a bit of puff down on the pier that that was minus 10 that day and they were in a car all covered in sort of hot water bottles and blankets, then they came out to shoot the scene. <laughs> was really weird. So I kind of learned as I went along there. Um, so, you know, it was, it was an experience to say the least, but it kind of turned out no bad for the first attempt. You know?
0: Oh, absolutely. And speaking of the experience, was there, while you're directing this film, is there anything mm-hmm. that you came across that you could not foresee happening? like? I'd imagine in some ways there's some parallels to the story that you were filming because you, as a young man, were heading into a world that you had no experience with and you're kind of flying by the seat of your pants. It was a kind of a similar situation with directing, and if so, was there things in directing that you did not anticipate happening? Um, and, but once it did, you kind of got, got a handle of it and kind of knew what you were doing after a little while.
1: No, it was just like, like you say, the first shoot where um, I, I was I was the producer and it was I it was it was difficult because my mum was ill and she had cancer and she died during the shoot and stuff like oh, that very sorry. And I had to fl- I had, yeah and, and I had to fly to Italy and Spain and do some placebo stuff so I left it in the hands of this other guy and it just didn't work it right so I thought look what am I going to do I can either can it or we can reshoot it we can save what we've got. So basically, it was really easy, the second shoot, because the editor guy I had, this guy, Khaled Spiewak, who was brilliant, me and him did it together, and it was so easy, really, because you're just really directing people about what you used to do. Mm. It'd be like, I'd say, well, look, I do this. So this is the way I do this, corner. I do this, I do that, whatever. And John would act like this, and Scott would have done that, and Tara, you know what I mean? It was like, because you're just replaying it in your memory. It's not like fiction, you know? Mm. So you're just like going, like you're going back. Okay, a long period of time, thirty-five years or whatever it was, but you're just remembering what you did on the day and what you felt like on the day and how nervous you felt like on the day. And you know what I mean? It was—it's very easy just to tell people what it was like. So I mean, I didn't feel it was any—I um, mean, what definitely wasn't difficult, you know. I mean, the next one will be a lot easier, that's for sure. But you know, it was—it was a good experience.
0: You mentioned Connor. Connor Berry plays you in the movie. How did you find Connor? Did you know of him beforehand? Did you have to do a lot of auditions? What was the process like in finding him to play the younger version of yourself?
1: Yeah, well, we just had these auditions in London and Dundee. And, um, you know, we saw him, thought he looked great, acted great, had a good attitude. Then we went out for a a coffee and a croissant in Covent Garden, had a good chat for about an hour. And he he was just a really, really nice guy. He, He had a really easy going sort of manner and I thought if you if can bring that to the screen it'll be really good because he just had the look and he had this kind of haunted look as well that I always used to have where it was like everything's going to go wrong there's going to be a disaster like you know what I mean that kind of gaunt look not gaunt but you know that sort of face that was like it's a bit cheeky but it was all like also looked a bit worried all the time mm. you know? so I just thought he'd be perfect for that and he, he was really good and uh, I brought him out to Bangkok a few times, went through scenes and all that, and then he came around to my house. We he met my mum and all that sort of stuff. I'd done dinner, stayed over. You know, we really got to know him well. So it was a good, um, it was a good vibe on the set, you know. I think it's important to have a really good, a good uh, feeling.
0: You filmed... A yeah, good
1: atmosphere, you know.
0: Yes, absolutely. And you filmed a movie in Dundee, in Scotland. You know, it's interesting, I was reading up about Dundee, how Recent articles about that city is that now it is seen as a really kind of cool and hip kind of spot where food and art and a digital digital entertainment industry, especially especially, has really thrived. And I was actually reading an article just um, before we, we, this interview, where from GQ magazine from like 2015, which called Dundee Britain's coolest little city, uh, which uh, I I'd imagine yeah. maybe back in 1979, in which this movie was made. Dundee wouldn't have that label on it um what was Dundee like back then in 79 um for people who don't know me and myself especially and how did you go about kind of recapturing that spirit in that look uh, for your movie
1: well it was weird because Dundee at the time that was the time the oil boom you know the North Sea oil thing it was a it was all kicking off big time and and Dundee had the best ports the, the best facility but basically the council in Dundee there was always all sorts of stuff going on there, you know. You can't really go into it on, on interviews, but we, Dundee ended up getting nothing and Aberdeen got everything, right? Mm. And Aberdeen didn't have as good facilities as Dundee. So Dundee's unemployment was something like 21%, right? And uh, Aberdeen's was about three, right? <laughs> so, so, so all the stuff that really should have come to Dundee went to Aberdeen. So there's was high unemployment. Uh, lots of there was a lot of gangs and fights and you know there there was a lot of factories were shut down. I mean there was big factories like I used to work at Timex and N- NCR and the Duke Mills. They they were all winding down. There were thousands of people going out of work. You know I lived on a housing scheme where it was packed to be like glue sniffers and junkies and you know you were all, there was like, there was always something going on. It was it was a bit rough and tumble, but I mean the people are great. I mean, the people had loads of adversity. Yeah, but they were always good. They always had a good good uh, sense of humour, you know. And it used to be called mini Chicago. The Glasgow people used to call Dundee mini Chicago. It's quite mm. funny. Um, so it was not it was like it is today, because today I think they've spent in the last four or five years over a billion pounds developing the waterfront. Yes. So, so it was very difficult to get a decent job. There, there was really nothing to do. I mean, it's, it's totally different now. There's all these flashy restaurants. and Well, there was the last time I was there, but they might all shut now because of the COVID thing. Who knows? Mm. But it's totally transformed. It's a bit of, it was rough and tumble back in the day. Uh, but, you know, it is what it is. And they had a great football team, so Dundee United, so that was my team. So, so that's one thing that was great. You know? <laughs> the
0: film, the the film Schemers opens with this, this notorious quotes by Hunter S Thompson about the music business. And for people who don't know, it, it reads, um, the music business is a cruel and shallow money trench, a long plastic hallway where thieves and pimps run free and good men die like dogs. There's also a negative side, which is just such a nice <laughs> caveat at the end there. And I've, I've read that before when, um, years ago when I when I was in uh, university and I was reminded of that quote when I watched your film. You yourself have been in the music business for quite a while now and Mm. Your, up, your beginnings in Dundee shows a lot of nefarious figures in the industry, especially in regards to, in regards to venue management, et cetera. Um, over the decades, the music industry has changed quite considerably. The record industry, especially we've now with we've downloads, et cetera, What about the venue industry, though? I mean, bands need places to play and the only way you can play is live. I know during COVID, people are doing streaming, but it's just not the same. Live venues will come back, I think. What is it like now, especially since you've been in the industry for over 30 years now, has it changed much in regards to that kind of nefarious kind of uh, elements in venue management (laughs) or have things gotten better, uh, better over the decades?
1: Oh, well, you've got to remember, um, well, things things are pretty much the same, to be honest. I mean, um, but my my experience back then was only in Dundee. But since then, you know, I've been with placebo to about 70 countries. And, you know, you, you go to Colombia, Mexico, you know, Russia, uh, you know, Lithuania, Latvia, whatever, like right, you know. And um, China, Japan, I mean, everybody's got a story. You know, every, every I mean, to be a promoter, Number one, you've got to be a bit of a gambler. This is if you're an independent promoter. If you yes. what I call a real promoter, right, a real one. Not like Live Nation, who are just like bean counters or something like that, who, who buy up all, all these independent ones and set the prices and set the gold standard and tell you what to do and all that sort of stuff. You know, I mean, but your, your independent promoter who likes the music usually has to come up a greasy pole to get to where they are. Like so, so you meet all sorts of characters, obviously. But uh, it's, it's, um, it's not changed, it's probably just on a higher level, because instead of playing little pubs or something with 500, you're doing arenas with 10,000 or something, mm. and there's much more at stake, you know? Uh, so you meet all sorts, yeah, yeah, all sorts. Yeah, it's been an interesting ride, I'll tell you. I mean, I've had some very interesting <laughs> situations in some countries, but it's, I mean, I'm still here. I'm still here to tell the tale, that's a good thing. You
0: know? Absolutely. Um, that tale culminates in an Iron Maiden gig in June of 1980 at Card Hall. You know, in the movie, you really capture Uh that stress and the emotional roller coaster that you went through in trying to put that concert on. Um, I'm just curious, though, all the years that you've been doing this now, did you ever run into Iron Maiden again? And did you ever share the story about how you put that gig on?
1: Yeah, yeah, it was brilliant. Yeah, it was like when we were doing the first shoot, uh, they were playing in Aberdeen, at Aberdeen Exhibition Hall, and it's only up the road for Dundee. It was only 60 miles away. So I talked to the manager and tried to work out some sort of way we could do something together, but it couldn't happen. Um, then I <laughs> I did the film anyway, and then they saw a cut of the film. And I was in Japan, and um, I was in this bar in Tokyo, and I got a phone call. And at first I thought it was my friend, so I started talking about someone else. Hmm. And the guy goes, do like, do you know who you're talking to? I went, No, it's it's Ben, isn't it? He says, no, it's it's Rod, Rod Smallwood, Iron Maiden's manager. I went, oh, Rod, how's it going, man? He goes, "Um, well, I went, look, I can read your mind. I can read your mind. I can tell you that you're going to tell me you don't like the way Iron Maiden are represented and you don't like the actor playing you and uh, whatever, he says, exactly. I said, tell you what we'll do, we can change everything. He says, Dave, if you can reshoot the Iron Maiden bit, I'll support the film all the way, right? So that was that. So, actually, we did three shoots. We did the first shoot in uh, May, the second shoot in January, and then just before the film was um, kind of released or whatever, we shot two days doing the Iron Maiden thing. So, I talked to Iron Maiden all the time, and um, they, they love the film. In fact, Rod, Rod Swalwood, the manager, when we were re- rewriting the dialogue for the bit with him and the rider and all that, mm-hmm. he, he he actually wrote, Half the park because he wanted it to be like this or like that, so yeah, yeah, we got it good. And um one of the band, I can't remember what one it was, but at uh, Christmas he wanted a copy of the film, and then um, he got the. I uh, wasn't it Christmas? It was for his birthday party or something. He invited all his friends out to some private cinema he had. So, so I think they liked it. So it was good. And then they gave us footage of one of the live concerts, which I think was at the Rainbow in London. Okay. So in the original film, in in the original film that went to. Um, would you call it the festivals? We never had that. So the one that was released, we actually got the live footage. So yeah, I got in touch. And we we reminisced about the the gig and what a disaster I was on the day. Because I that's all true. Mm. I, I never had any rider. My my mum had to come and make the sandwiches. My mum and dad. My my mum had to spend her holiday money going to Asda to buy all the bacon and eggs and all that. And um, we never had any. I I had to go and get these guys off the street to be the crew. All all that sort of stuff. It was it was ridiculous. You know? But so, so obviously we had a good laugh about that. and um, Yeah, so that's it. So hopefully see them again soon when I'm back in London. We've got a dinner planned the next time I'm back. Uh, the last time I was back, it had to be cancelled because of the COVID thing. But when I go back, I'll see them. Awesome. They've got this hotel up in the West End someplace. Awesome. Yeah, so it's good. They're yeah, it's good.
0: One of the few bands I have yet to see live yet, which really bumps me up, because um, hopefully they come to Australia again when all this uh, COVID stuff dies down, like it's saying, because I never got a chance yet. So, um.
1: oh, well, oh, they're amazing. But, and, and they headline and download yes. in um, England uh, next year, I think it is now. They were meant to headline it this year, last year. You know, it got cancelled last year, cancelled this year. I now think it's next year. It's uh, And, you know, they've got such a following. God uh, I, I knows so how many they've got on um, Facebook and Twitter and all that stuff, but they've been supportive of the film. So I really look forward to seeing them. In fact, I was going to go and see them in Tokyo. We'd kind of planned it. Um, yeah, because Rod recommended this bar in Tokyo. He said, oh, if you're in Tokyo, just go to this bar. It's some railway carriage place in Shibuya. And if you mention my name, you'll get everything for nothing and you can have a great time. So oh, that was good. <laughs> awesome.
0: I, yeah, it's cool. Um, the movie ends with uh, the younger version of yourself, going to London, hopes high, uh, future unknown. Are we going to see a sequel to this movie?
1: Ah, uh, sequel's getting written just now, and honest to God, I'm no joking, it's brilliant. It's really funny. I'm writing it with this guy. I can't tell you who it is, but it's... Uh, he, he just sent me the latest kind of treatment this morning. So we're going to have the script ready... What is this we're in just now? May or something. Script will be ready by the end of June. We're going to start shooting in October. And it's basically centres around me and Scott you know, Scott Young in the film. I don't know if you read it to the end or if you research what happened to Scott, but um, Scott and I in London, and it covers 1985 to 1994. Mm. Um, sorry, 1986 to 1994. So I do all my stuff. I think I'm going to go to London, conquer the music business. I end up working for the council, doing variety acts, calling out the bingo, checking in a basket gigs, doing tea dances. So it's hardly the rock and roll dream. And then it finishes up. I'm doing Nirvana and Green Day and all that sort of stuff. And Scott does his thing. If you just Google in Scott Young Dundee, you'll see what happened to Scott. Mm. So he goes his way. I go my way. It's very killer soundtrack. nice um, oh, it's, it's it's exciting. It's it's dark but funny. Uh, so it's a good good story and it and encompasses a lot of indie bands that you might not have heard of, but big bands as well, because there's some great. Great independent bands that went right under the radar. So I'm going to use some of their tracks and then shell out some money for a couple of biggies, you know, just to really give it a bit of boom. you know. So that's it. Yeah, it's all happening.
0: So for everyone listening out there, May 12 on demand and digital in Australia and New Zealand as well. Schemers, I highly recommend everyone check out that film. And David, I thank you very much for your time today. Congratulations with the film. Um, it's really cool, I think, that you're able to bring your... Uh, story to the screen in this way and you did in such a great way as well so congrats once again and thank you for your time hey mark cheers